If you're looking for proven ways to take your fundraising results to the next level, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, hosted by Tammy Zonker. Tammy has trained and led thousands of nonprofit organizations to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars and is also recognized as one of America's top 20 fundraising experts. This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now, let's hear from Tammy. We'll start the show in just a moment after a word from our sponsor. Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management and online fundraising software that helps small to medium nonprofits, just like First Tee of Greater Akron, a nonprofit that empowers kids and teens through the game of golf. After just one year with Bloomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear how they did it or visit bloomerang.com forward slash intentional to learn more. Again, that's bloomerang.com forward slash intentional. Today on the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, I'm delighted to be talking with Rhea Wong. She's the author of Get That Money, Honey, the No BS Guide to Raising More Money for Your Nonprofit. Rhea helps nonprofits raise more money. Though she has deep experience with institutional, corporate, and event fundraising, she's the most passionate about major individual donors and helping organizations establish individual giving programs. She has raised millions of dollars in private philanthropy and is passionate about building the next generation of fundraising leaders. She, too, has become a leader in the New York nonprofit community and truly across the nation. She is a frequent educational commentator in the media. She's been recognized with the Smart CEO Brava Award in 2015 and the New York Nonprofit Media's 40 Under 40 in 2017. Rhea lives in Brooklyn with her husband, and when she's not raising money for causes she loves, she can be found hosting her own podcast, The Nonprofit Lowdown, which I love, and promoting her book, Get That Money, Honey, or maybe on stage as a newbie stand-up comedian in downtown Brooklyn. Rhea, welcome to the show. Tammy, thank you so much for having me. It's such a delight to be here. I think you and I have talked about how we have a mutual admiration society. So finally to connect is really fun. At last. Let's just jump in. Let's do it. All right. So in your book, Get That Money, Honey, which I listened to on Audible, you are the reason I got so many steps in. I think you're the reason I won like last December my Peloton walking challenge because I didn't want to stop the recording. So good. That's so kind. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. In the book, you talk about the importance of really understanding your own relationship to money, that however we grew up, whether we had wealth or whether we struggled, our family struggled or somewhere in between, what we grew up in and the early messages that we learned about money influence our biases, our beliefs, and our assumptions that we make about money and fundraising and donors. So tell us about that 
And if we do have disempowering biases and beliefs about money, which so many of us do, how do we transform them? Oh, my gosh, Tammy. How much time do you have? I think this money mindset piece is really one of the most foundational pieces of my teaching because, you know, like you, I'm sure I was an accidental fundraiser. I was a 26-year-old ED. My first day on the job, I did two Google searches. Google search one was, what does an executive director do? And Google search two was, how do you fundraise? I was so clueless, right? And so I did all the things. I was like, okay, this is a self-study. Basically, I have to create my own MBA program. I took the classes. I went to the foundation center. I bought all the books. I went to talk to anyone who would have me. And I found that there was a lot around strategies and tactics. Like, this is how you write a grant proposal. This is how you write an annual appeal letter, et cetera, et cetera. But nobody was really getting to the psychological aspect of being a fundraiser. And the thing is, if you haven't actually examined your own relationship to money, either having it or not having it, or the things that you think about people who do have it or what they're like or what they're not like, then I think you're missing a whole chunk of what it actually means to be a fundraiser. It's like, how do you sell shoes if you don't want to talk about shoes, right? And <laughs> yeah. so what I really uncovered for myself was I had been brought up with a real scarcity mindset. I think a lot of us are, and particularly in the nonprofit sector, I think we really operate on a, I mean, look, the word nonprofit is even a scarcity yeah. word, right? Not profit. And my family my grandparents were immigrants from China. They grew up very poor. My parents grew up in San Francisco, you know, very, very poor as well. And so in my family, we made money mean something. And to us, money meant survival and stability. And so for me to then go out and be a fundraiser, psychologically, subconsciously, I was projecting my own stuff about money onto other people that somehow I was believing that to ask them to support this cause that I was asking them to sacrifice their stability or sacrifice their, you know, uh, giving of their own stability and security. And like putting themselves in jeopardy by being that's generous. Right. That's right. Huh. But I then realized like, oh, that's just my own issue, right? It's almost like when you're dating. I always love a dating analogy, right? And you've had a bad experience and you enter the next relationship and be like, oh, well, you know, my last boyfriend cheated on me, so I know you're going to cheat on me. It's like, okay, well, that's probably not going to be a recipe for a healthy relationship. And so yeah. part of it is really just examining what's there. And to be frank, for a lot of folks, especially people of color, there's a lot of trauma associated with resources and wealth and not wealth. And I'm not saying any of it's wrong or you're not bad for having these ideas, but I'm sort of thinking about it through the lens of Marine Kondo, like, let's just unpack what's here and decide what sparks joy and that which does not spark joy, you can bless and release, right? And so often we haven't even done the work of opening the suitcase. Like, what's even in here? Yeah, I can believe that. To unpack it really means to examine what has never been examined before. It's just been what's so. That's right. Well, and if you think about it, the way that we learn about money is it's usually not explicit, right? And it's usually based on what our parents taught us about money. And our, what our parents taught us about money is based on what their parents taught us about money. Their parents probably grew up in the Depression era, right? So the ideas and the stories and the ways that we approach money are operating on an old system of the economy in the Depression era was really different than the economy in 2023. 
Like the ways we think about money are different. We don't even actually have much cash. It's all digital money. Wealth creation opportunities abound. So I think without even recognizing what operating system we're running on, how can we upgrade the operating system? That's so good. So what are some of the ways that you coach individuals to catch when they are operating from that old belief system? And like, do you give them mantras to like course correct when that comes up? Like money doesn't grow on trees or whatever those old analogies were. How do you retrain your brain, rewire your brain? Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's such a good question. So your brain, and I'm going to credit my performance coach, Dr. Eugene Choi here, your brain is only ever in one of two modes, either survival or executive. So survival mode is when you're in that amygdala, fight, fight, or freeze. You're thinking about the world in black and white. You're very reactive. I'm in New York City right now. I would say that most people in New York are probably in survival mode, right? Like if you've ever met someone who has an outsized emotional reaction to something very small, they're probably operating in survival mode. Yeah. The counterpart to survival mode is executive mode. And that's when your prefrontal cortex, and that is the most evolved part of your brain, is engaged. That's where creativity lies. Like if you've ever been in the flow, that's your prefrontal cortex is lit up. That's generosity. You see different options. You're connecting. So the first step, I think, is even recognizing when you're in survival mode. They say awareness is the first step. So one quick thing to do is literally kind of just sit there and put a label onto the emotion that you're feeling, right? And it's important to say, I feel as opposed to I am. So I feel stressed. I feel frustrated. I feel anxious, whatever it may be, because feelings are temporary and feelings pass. And I am is an identity statement. But just the very act of putting a label on it actually moves the energy to your prefrontal cortex because you actually have to think about it. So that's one thing. I actually just listened to this really fascinating podcast by Dr. Andrew Schuberman. And they're kind of like three things that you can do. You can either come at it from a brain perspective. And so that's when you use encouraging self-talk. That's when you can write down all of the things that you're thinking about and then look at it objectively. Like, is this really true? So you can go from the brain to the body because we also hold stress in our bodies, right? So we can calm our nervous system down. The other thing, we can go from the body to the brain. So if you're really feeling very anxious, you can like go do some aerobic exercise. You can do some yoga. You can do some breathing, which will kind of reset your system. And then you can also do other things like mantras. I actually meditate. So I'm on day almost a thousand of meditation. And what meditation does is it slows the brain down from the stimulus to the reaction, right? Because we have a choice. And it's the thing that happens to you is never the thing that causes the stress. It's your interpretation of the thing that happens to you. And so to slow down the space between the thing happening and your interpretation of it is important. So like you and I just spoke about before we got online about, I got some critical feedback about a training that I did, right? If I hadn't been mindful about examining the stories that I was telling myself about it, I could have gone down this shame spiral of like, oh, I'm a fraud. I'm an imposter. People don't like me, blah, 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 blah. And instead, just the ability to take a breath and be like, okay, like, what is it that is actually being said versus what is a story that I'm telling myself about what's being said? So I think there's that. I think there's also being really mindful about where your attention goes. So we have this thing in our brains called confirmation bias. 
So based on whatever perception we have, like if we believe that people are not generous, our brain is really good at filtering out all of the counterexamples and only focusing in on the things that affirm the thing that we already believe, right? So I think being careful about what are you actually telling yourself? What is the story that you're telling yourself? And can you find counterexamples, right? My story is that people aren't generous. Can I actually come up with examples of when people have been really generous? Or conversely, and I think this happens a lot, we tend to catastrophize a lot as humans. And so like as an ED, I can think about like, oh, like these 10 things went wrong. Okay. But what about the 20 things that went right? And so just really being careful about where your attention goes, because that's where your energy flows. So that was a long list of things. I love it. I think that our listeners, and certainly I, can take some actionable learnings from that to actually apply. I think that's incredible. And as you were speaking, and I was looking for like evidence in life, right? I think that one case would be when the pandemic hit. And Mm -hmm. so many fundraisers said no one is going to give during this pandemic. And yet what happened, right? It was the largest increase in giving, according to the Giving USA report, or 6% year-over-year giving, which is unheard of. Yep, that's right. Yeah. That's right. I just think part of it is managing your brain, right? Because your brain likes to tell stories. Whether or not it's grounded in truth, it's almost like riding a horse. Like You either control the brain or it runs away with you. And so often I think We believe the stories that our brain tells us without question. And all I'm saying is like, let's take a beat. Is that the story that you want to believe? And by the way, beliefs are just things that you think again and again, right? It's just a thought that you're having. And if the thought is not serving you, can you choose a different thought? Like we are in charge of our brains. I want to be clear, like I'm not saying that people should be super delusional about the world, like (laughs) Pollyanna-ish, right? But I do think that a lot of the pain that we experience in our lives, and it's very Buddhist, it's like we get attached to a certain thing. Like, well, this should be like this, or this person should do this, or this shouldn't be like this, right? Okay. Like, it is what it is. And the only thing that you can change is your approach to it. So good. Thank you. You say that the secret to fundraising is really three things. Having the right mindset, which you've been talking about, right? Just being intentional and present and taking that beat and saying, okay, how I'm feeling or what I'm thinking, is that true? Or Mm -hmm. is it just a belief or a a repeating thought that has like entrenched itself? So I love that. So the first thing are the right mindset, but then you go on to say the right systems and the right strategies. Mm -hmm. Share more about those keys to success, if you would. Yeah. Actually, could I just add one thing about mindset too, Tammy? Yes, please. So I think the reason why a lot of fundraisers burn out in the job, and it's probably two reasons. Reason number one is it feels very lonely because you're kind of out there, the lone fundraiser. You're probably getting a lot of pressure from the board, getting pressure from your ED, whatever it is. You're feeling pressure from yourself about bringing in money to meet people's salary needs. So I think first and foremost, really developing some community so you don't feel like you're alone. And then the second thing is be unattached to the outcome. Right. Because at the end of the day, whether or not someone says yes or no is not up to you. Like you don't control their minds. You don't control their pocketbooks. And so often I think there's this need to attach like, well, if I get the gift, I'm a good fundraiser. And if I don't get the gift, I'm a bad fundraiser. Right. Can you make it less emotional? Like it's not whether or not you're good or bad. Like, did you do all of the things 
to the best of your ability to get it to a point where you were able to do a good solicitation. And the solicitation is the win. And even if it's a no, like play the game tape back. Okay, so what are the things that we could have done better? And then we do it again. And instead of turning inwardly and beating ourselves up over something that ultimately is not within our control, like you might as well beat yourself up over the fact that it's raining today. Like you have no control over this. And yet, because I think we're under such pressure and because we put ourselves under such pressure, that's why people burn out because you're putting yourself in this survival mindset. And that's when your adrenal glands are firing. That's when your cortisol levels go through the roof. That's when you feel your adrenaline pumping. Human beings are not meant to be in this heightened state of survival all of the time. And yet all of it is controlled by our brains and the stories that we tell ourselves. Anyway, that's the only thing I wanted to add about that. To go to your question about the right structures and the right strategies. So this is so funny, so timely. I actually just did this with my group coaching program. So the first step is, particularly with a lot of the groups that I work with, they're on the smaller end, usually under $2 million. And under $2 million, a lot of the processes are very organic. They usually live in the brain of one or two people. Mm -hmm. And then those one or two people kind of have to manage everything and like, oh, maybe I remember to send the acknowledgement letter or maybe I remember to like invite them on or whatever. So I think the first step is literally just like write down the steps of what does it look like from start to finish when you are bringing a new foundation funder on, a new individual funder, a new corporate funder, like just literally write the steps down. And then see where you have some gaps, right? Are we shortchanging the cultivation stage? Are we actually doing anything like post-solicitation, right? Oftentimes, and I know that's one of your other questions, we're not very good at stewardship. That's neither here nor there. And then I know people like to talk about their CRM systems and get real fancy. And like, I think technology can certainly help to shore up your systems, especially now with ChatGPT, which I want to talk about in a second. That can be a game changer. But Technology is not going to save you if you don't actually know what you're doing. <laughs> so yeah. like you literally just have to write the steps down. Look at if you have the data that you need, right? So if you're flying blind and you don't know if you actually have potential donors who could be major gift prospects or who could be monthly donors or who are engaged with you on social or whatever it may be, or are actually opening your newsletters, then you don't actually have a clear sense of what your pipeline looks like. So it's about having the right numbers. It's about having the right structures. It's about having the right processes. Are you meeting with your team once a week to go over your pipeline? Are you bringing this up at your board meeting so that we can actively work through the pipeline? Do you have a list of top 20 that you're actively working on? What are your metrics? Do you know people are engaged with you or not, right? Like I can come up with a list of 20 people. I could put Oprah on that list. But if Oprah isn't engaging with me, doesn't really matter. <laughs> so I think that's, you know, one. And then your know, strategy drives structure, right? So at the end of the day, like, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to do? And based on what you're trying to do, do your structures and processes support the thing that you're trying to do, your goals? Do you have strategies that are aligned to the goals? So like to say, for example, if my goal is to bring on four new gifts at $10,000 each, okay, so what's my strategy? What am I going to do in order to ensure that I can work towards that goal? And then what are the processes underneath the, maybe the CRM I'm using, the email sender, whatever it is. What are those mechanisms that are assisting me to get to that goal? So it's not rocket science, but I think a lot of people get in their own heads and they make it more complicated than it has to be. Yeah. 
I think one of the challenges in addition to that is that there's just so much incoming, right? The voicemails, the emails, the ideas from other people, board members, et cetera. And I know I always tell groups like activity does not equal effectiveness. And yes. And so you gave the example if my goal is to bring on four donors at $10,000 each, and these are people who are truly passionate, right? So these are going to be mm-hmm. long term relationships. I need to prioritize that work. That work yeah. may not be urgent, as major gifts often aren't urgent, whereas the event is urgent, the grant application deadline is urgent. But really looking at what is most important. Yeah. And setting up, again, the systems and the structures and using your data to really create a plan and then having the discipline to follow the plan. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite sayings, Tammy, is she who chases two rabbits catches none, right? Like you're right. We do. We get so distracted. I'm actually reading this book right now called 4,000 Weeks, which is the average lifespan, which is so crazy if you think about it. 4,000 weeks is not that long. Wow. And And we are just constantly bombarded by the email pings and the social media and the voicemails and the this and the that. And I think we just need to be much better about what to ignore because like new shiny things are coming at us all of the time. And then the other thing I just want to add here and like EDs will probably just, their jaws will drop. I believe an ED should be spending at least 65 to 80% of their time fundraising because they are uniquely qualified to be the face of the organization. And I can hear EDs listening to this being like, but that's why I hired a development director. No, 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 no. You hired a development director in order to help you to be more efficient in fundraising, right? So like that's the first thing. And then the second thing is EDs are like, yeah, but my job is strategy. I'm like, I literally don't know what that means. Like that means that you are sitting in your office, like tinkering around with email. That's not a thing, right? Your highest and best value add to the organization is out there as a chief relationship officer and the spokesperson for your organization. And if you're not doing that, then you are not spending your time in the highest ROI way. So often I hear EDs talk about operational issues that they have or staff issues that they have or whatever it may be. That is where we get to the concept of delegation. If there's somebody else who is less expensive than you, who can solve that problem, you should hire them to solve that problem. Like I talk about expenses. There are three ways that you should be thinking about expenses. Number one, if I spend something and I get an ROI, then it's a good expense. Number two, if I spend something and I get my time back, that's a good expense. And number three, if I spend money and I get operational efficiency, that's a good expense, right? So really focusing on like as an ED or as a CEO, what is the thing that I am uniquely qualified to do and then I need to either delegate, eliminate, or automate everything else that falls outside of that quadrant. I love that. Like that, if there's like one nugget that people take away, and I'm sure there are more nuggets to come, but that's so powerful, Rhea. Look, the truth be told is I think a lot of the reason why EDs don't focus on fundraising is that they don't have the mindset piece down. They're nervous about fundraising. They don't really know what to say. It feels anxiety-inducing, blah, 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 blah. So they avoid it. And then they do, to your point, activities. Like, I'm busy. I'm getting to the bottom of my inbox. Like, that's an important thing that I'm doing. And I just feel like if you're not clear about your end goal, like, if it's not in service to the thing that you're trying to do, then, like, why are you doing it? 
I completely agree. I think that's brilliant. And I think, too, that often executive directors or CEOs find themselves in that position, kind of avoiding fundraising because they grew up through the ranks. Like maybe they Mm -hmm. were a social worker who then became Mm -hmm. a director of such and such program, or they were in quality control and compliance or the CFO. They were in finance. It's so interesting. We do have a turnover problem in the fundraising profession. And I think that that's one of the reasons, not the only reason, but that is maybe one of the reasons why so few fundraisers actually rise to be executive director or CEO. But where they do, we see those organizations begin to really soar because they have that chief relationship officer in their CEO. And Mm -hmm. that CEO knows how to partner so powerfully with the development director or chief philanthropy officer, whatever that title is. Yeah. Yeah. I say that a lot, which is as an ED, if your chief focus is not revenue, then you just have a nice hobby. The other thing is people don't realize nonprofits are a small business or a big business, depending on how big your budget is, but you are running a business. Businesses run on revenue and expenses in simple terms. If you're not obsessed with revenue and how you're going to pay to make the mission happen, you have a really nice hobby. And I'm so happy for you, but that's not a business. Yeah. And that's hard to hear. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. super hard to hear. But again, I think it goes back to your point about mindset, like really going inward and evaluating. Mm-hmm. what it is you're doing, why you're doing it, what are the motivators? And then sometimes, what are your biggest fears? Yeah. To your point too, Tammy, I think when we promote people off from program or promote people from finance or whatever it is, and we don't actually provide them the training that they need to do their jobs, we are also doing a disservice to them. It's like, you would never go to a doctor who hadn't gone to medical school. You'd never go to a lawyer who hadn't been in law school. Like, why are you asking an ED? to go fundraise, which I would argue is probably the most critical function that they perform without any training or any support, which is why I developed my fundraising accelerator, because so many of us are accidental fundraisers. Like, okay, good job. Like, good luck. You have the top job. (laughs) Call me if you need me. Bye. It's like, okay, uh, what? Such a good point. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. First T of Greater Accra needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Here's Executive Director Josh Smith sharing what he likes about Bloomerang. We love Bloomerang because it's so, like, it's very user-friendly. We're able to do more because our daily tasks of thanking donors and sending thank you notes have been cut more than half because of Bloomerang. Year over year, we have raised more funds. So obviously, I think Bloomerang's been a a huge part of that. By investing in a donor management system that they actually love using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com forward slash intentional or click the link in the show notes. Rhea, I heard you recently say that you believe that the old school way that so many of us were taught on how to fundraise is just plain wrong and frankly, offensive to our donors. Yeah. So it's so funny. 
So Tammy, I actually got some pushback on that. Someone said they're offended by the use of old school. So I, I will amend the use the word old school. What I mean is this extractive form of fundraising that I think is very much, I don't know if it comes out of sales. Like I don't really know where it comes from. But when we think about people as just walking numbers or mm. walking checkbooks, that's when we get extractive and transactional. And by the way, when you're in survival mindset, that's where that comes from. You start to think about people as just resources to be extracted from. Like you and I have been around a while. I'm sure you've heard people say things like, well, we just need to convince people to give to us, or we're just going to twist some arms, or we're going to be out there begging. Or what, I mean, just like really unhelpful narrative around fundraising. I also think what's interesting is culture and the way it's changing, right? Like, I think collectively, we are becoming fractionalized as a society. We're looking at micro communities. I, I often think about when I was a kid, we would all watch the same TV show on Sunday night at 8 p.m. And then the next day we'd come and talk about the TV show. We don't have it anymore. There's no sort of sense of collective experience. And when we think about buying habits, as an example, I go online, maybe read some reviews, and then I decide whether I'm going to buy or not. Like, I don't need to talk to a salesperson. In fact, I actually hate talking to salespeople. Like when I walk into a store, when someone's like, can I help you? I'm like, no, 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 I can help myself. I think that's true of the way that we do philanthropy as well. And so what we really need to do is think of ourselves less as like doing something to our donors in order to get a reaction. Because again, remember, like we're not responsible for anything that they do or think or say. Instead, how do we think of ourselves as facilitators of resources, right? At the end of the day, if I donate to something, it's because I have an emotional reason for doing so. Like, we can talk about like tax incentives and whatever. Like it's, it's never really tax incentives. Like at the end of the day, like you're going to have more money if you don't donate to an organization. Like you just are. So there are different reasons for donating that are emotional, not logical. And so what I really mean is like we need to stop thinking of our donors as resources that we can extract from and instead think of them as how can we become essentially a, a matchmaker between the thing that they want to see in the world and the thing that we're doing and combine it together? I totally agree. Like being that conduit of shared values and desired impact. That's Absolutely. Right. And if we had more of that, the full circle of that, meaning the engagement, the connection, presenting the invitation, the opportunity yep. to take action through generosity, and then the stewardship reporting back how those gifts made a difference, I feel like our retona retention challenge in the U.S. would not be so terrible. Oh my gosh, Tammy. We're about to wade into this. Are you ready to talk about that? Let's dig in. Okay. So I know that you talked about the generosity crisis where we're seeing fewer American families donating to charities and causes that they love. And yet... If we look at the growth of DAFs, donor-advised funds, and family foundations, we're seeing a tremendous growth. So it's not that the wealth is not out there. It's that we as a sector are not doing a good job of inspiring generosity and of inspiring trust, right? We don't act in ways that put our donor in the frame of mind of being a trusted partner. And so 
Yeah. And we do this in a variety of ways, right? We try to like chase down people to have coffees with us and then like spring and ask on them before they're ready or before they know it's coming or before we've even developed a relationship. Then we get their money and then we don't talk to them until the next year rolls around, right? We, we think because we think, oh, they'll only give once a year. Talk about right. beliefs and biases that are completely generated by us. But aside from that, like we are not thinking about it from the donor perspective of like, Maybe they do want to know the impact of their gift, right? Like, why wouldn't you want to know the impact? But we get so into like this busyness mode that we actually forget the donor experience. Like, the thing that I want to really emphasize to people is that other nonprofits are not your competition. Donor advised funds and family foundations are your competition. And until we enter relationships with our donors as trusted advisors and partners that treat them the way that they want to be treated, that treat them with respect, that treat them with closing the loop and closing the story on the gift that they gave and what it helped to do in the world. That's why we see a donor retention issue. And so often, and this is a kind of a pet peeve, so many people come to me like, well, I need to find new donors. I need to find new donors. And nine times out of 10, they don't. What they need to do is fix the leaky bucket. If they actually took care of the donors that they had, they wouldn't necessarily need to be on this hunt for new donors all the time. And in fact, I tell them, if you took all the time and energy that you spend thinking about new donors and actually just shifted it over to your donor stewardship and donor experience, you wouldn't be under the gun for new donors all the time because you would actually have a deepening, ever-increasing relationship with your existing donors. And so anyway, that's like on my little soapbox, but I... It's almost like, I don't mean to throw kids under the bus here, but I have a, a niece and nephew and they're teenagers. I'm like, that's fine. We give them gifts for the holidays and gifts for their birthday and whatever, whatever. And like, we don't hear anything. Like we might get a perfunctory thank you. And then the next year rolls around and they're expecting another gift. And I'm like, we give it because we love them. But I'm also so like, you know, there'd probably be more in it for you if you actually touch base a couple of times throughout the year. Be like, hey, here's what's going on. Like, hey, thanks for the ballet classes that you paid for. Here's what I'm doing with that, right? So anyway, yeah. it's just basic human intelligence. And, you know, I think there is a direct correlation between our donor retention problem and our inability to maintain those relationships and build that trust. And you think about a conduit, right, to widen the conduit and make it like even more flow to be able to come mm -hmm. through it. I think there's a direct correlation between that, the donor retention challenge, and the fundraiser retention challenge. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. Penelope Burke talked in, I think it was donor-centered leadership in that book, and the research that went into that is that we know that the average tenure for a fundraising professional in the U.S. is goes somewhere between 18 and 24 months. And her research with donors, her surveys indicated that donors say it takes about two years for them to be trusting enough to give their most generous gift. So if you like look at those two trends and that information, that data side by side, it seems like donors are just about ready to make their most generous gift when the fundraiser leaves. And then we have to start that cycle all over again. Now, the average tenure for an executive director far longer. Yeah, it's about seven years. And to your point, if they are an active part, a partner, if they are the chief relationship officer, then it seems that that would help stem the donor retention issue. Yeah, for sure. I think 
when we're talking about major gifts in particular, and and I'll cite Greg Warner of Market Smart here. This is not my statistic, but you know, it, it's very high level. Like it's very white glove, right? You're not going to have mass strategies for bespoke donors. So an ED can probably handle about 10 of those very high level relationships in addition to everything else they're doing. A major gift officer can probably handle about 40. So ironically, in order to scale, we have to do things that don't scale, which is high touch relationships. And you're right, it takes about 21 months for someone to get to a major significant gift. But I think to your point, if we're not investing in the longevity of our staff who carry those relationships, and of course, we're never going to see the fruits of our labor because why would we? People don't trust us. Exactly. Yeah. And so just to kind of go back to the generosity crisis data and how it intersects with this conversation. So Brian Crimmins and Nathan Chappelle wrote this amazing book based on a body of research, including Giving USA data and the Association of Fundraising Professionals, Fundraising Effectiveness, quarterly reports, and kind of crunched the numbers to say that just a few years ago, and you know this so well, but just a few years ago, about 66% of all U.S. households gave charitable gifts Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. at some gift value. Mm -hmm. And Currently, it's like 50 point something percent. So right around half of U.S. households are giving. So that's a pretty steep decline in just a few number of years. In fact, the fundraising effectiveness data would show that the number of U.S. households giving has been declining for seven quarters in a row, steadily Mm -hmm. declining. And so if it continues on that same rate of decline, U.S. household giving will be single digits in 49 Mm -hmm. years. We have to crack the code on this. And the authors, Brian and Nathan, were really great about talking about like radical connection as part of the solution. And one of the other nuances is, yes, we do retain donors at those higher gift values. It's the lower gift values where we're seeing the hemorrhaging of U.S. households giving, right? Because maybe they got a letter but that's probably it. It's kind of like the niece or the nephew who's like, hey, it's my birthday again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, out of sight, out of mind, for sure. Yeah. And so it gets really, really tricky. We don't necessarily recognize longevity of giving. Mm-hmm. We aren't as intentional as we could be about creating community of givers. Mm-hmm. And we know that millennials, X, Ys, and Zs, really, they're loyal to causes, not necessarily organizations. Part of their motivation for giving, in addition to making a difference, is being part of a community. And Mm -hmm. Rhea, you've talked about the importance of community. So whether it's a monthly giving community or a young professionals group or an alumni Mm -hmm. group, it's got to be an and strategy for us to survive it. Well, I think there's so many things there. So, Tammy, I think, number one, you point to the giving in kind of middle and working class families. I think In part, it's because of the volatility that we're seeing in the financial world, right? Like when we say recession, people feel poorer, even if their circumstances have not changed. And when you see 7% inflation, 9% inflation, and like it just is more expensive at the grocery store, then like you're going to feel like you have less to give. So I think there's like the psychological aspect of our orientation to money. I think the other piece too is absolutely around community. Like we need to be able to build 
community around an idea, community around a cause, community around an identity. Because again, the reason I give is an emotional reason. And so often we're not great as fundraisers at uncovering the emotional reasons for why people give. Because here's the thing, we're also not great at listening. And I will include myself in this, right? I, I had someone say recently, like, well, I'm sending these emails out to my donors to see if they want to have coffee to hear about all the new exciting stuff that we're working on. And I was like, that is the same as asking someone out on a date to tell them about how great you are. Nobody is signing up for that. Tammy, let me just tell you about all the things about me. And here's my resume. And da, 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 da. no one wants that, right? And so right. I think part of it is like, we really need to get ourselves in the mind of like, why is this person giving? And how do I marry their emotional reasons with the thing that we're doing? So I think there's that. And the other thing is, I think one of my favorite articles is by Kevin Kelly, A Thousand Crew Fans. And he talks about to really sustain your business or to sustain yourself or to sustain an organization, all you really need are a thousand crew fans. And who are a thousand crew fans? True fans are people who will show up for you, who will buy your stuff, who will donate every time you send in an ask, who will follow you on social, who will tell their friends about you. You need to find your true fans. And I think so often in the nonprofit sector, we're so afraid to claim a space, right? We're so afraid of offending. I was talking to Mitch Stein about this. He was like, you have to just be pink sherbet. Like everyone, you probably have a strong feeling about pink sherbet, either good or bad. We have to be willing to turn some people off in order to turn our people on. Like if we're vanilla, no one feels that strongly about us. And you're like, okay, it's fine. It's vanilla. It's there, right? I mean, never once have I ever walked into a room and said like, wow, this beige color is really doing it for me. Beige is awesome. No. Right. We have to be willing to claim an edge. We have to be willing to piss people off sometimes if that's what it takes, especially in a world that's so brand driven now. We have to really live our brand. And if folks are not attracted to that brand, they're not your people. They're not your people. Yeah. No, I see this all the time. Good marketing attracts great marketing repels. Like I want every single nonprofit out there to claim an edge such that anybody who's not their people will go to their website and be like, not for me. But the people for whom you are for, your thousand true fans, will look at it and be like, oh, my God, where have you been all my life? These are my people. And so I think we need to stop trying for the masses because, like, number one, you probably don't have enough resources to try for the masses. Like Coca-Cola spends billions and billions of dollars and they don't even get all of the people, right? So what's your nonprofit thing to do? But what we do have is the feeling of love, the feeling of affinity, the feeling of connection and community. And we traffic in that. Like that's our thing, right? Like you don't get a product when you donate to us. Like I don't know if you might get a t-shirt, but it's not the same as like I go to the store, you give me X, I give you Y. It's like you give me X, I give you Y in feelings. Right. And who among us are going to be courageous enough to like extrapolate that to say, we don't need more donors. We need <laughs> better donors. And by better, I don't mean more wealthy. I don't mean any descriptor other than more connected, more yeah. passionate about and aligned with the work that we're doing as an organization. That when we right. say we, it means all of us. That's right. That's right. Like Seth Godin wrote one of the best books on marketing called This is Marketing. And the key message there was people like us do things like this. Who is the yeah. us and what's the thing that we do? 
And so the clearer you can be about who the us is and the thing that we do, the more you're going to be able to attract your kind of people. I love that so much. Yeah, mm. it's a good oh, one. Absolutely love him. So Rhea, before we move into kind of the rapid fire questions, I just want to open it up. Like what else, what other wisdom can you share with our listeners about how to make stronger connections, how to share your message? You're one of those folks who understands and has a depth of expertise in fundraising, but also marketing and brand, right? Yeah. Sometimes those things don't live in the same person. So from whichever side or both, what wisdom do you want to leave our listeners with? So often I think we try to mind read and anticipate what people will like or what they won't like. You won't know unless you ask them. Just ask people. Like I think we, we're so afraid of our donors. We're so afraid to engage in conversations. We're so afraid to ask like, what would you like to see? How would you like to be thanked? What kinds of things do you want to be invited to, right? Like, just ask me and I, I will probably tell you. And yeah. so I think instead of trying to mind read and, and psychically intuit into what people's motivations and desires are, just ask them. So I think that's- And then that's listen. <laughs> to your earlier And then point. listen, yeah. And then listen. Ask them, listen, and then test and iterate, right? Because I think the other thing is we're so driven by this perfectionism. Again, that's survival brain driven that like I have to like construct this perfect thing that is going to be, you know, knock it out of the park. Any offer, any invitation, any conversation, you're going to learn something. And like sometimes it's going to go badly, right? Like hate to break it to y'all. Failure is involved in this process. But then you learn and you iterate and you tweak and you vent to your friends and go out for a cocktail and then you like show up and try again. So I just think that we also have to not be afraid of failing. We have to not be afraid of iterating. And we also have to allow room for failure. Because I think that's the other piece around why fundraisers burn out, which is like, if you're holding people's feet to the fire all the time and you don't give them the opportunity to try stuff or to fail or to iterate, then you're asking for them to quit, right? Because nobody wants to operate in that kind of world. And so I, I think often it's like administrators and board members who are most guilty of this, right? Like give people some space to try some stuff yeah, and fail, but like let's fail fast and fail upward. And if you're not failing, you probably aren't taking enough risks. You're not being innovative. And we go back to the beginning of our conversation. What are you afraid of? Are you afraid that they'll be so pissed off that they're going to leave and never give you money again? Are you afraid that they're going to go and put your name on blast and like tell all your friends what a terrible organization you are? Are you afraid that you will be ashamed? Are you afraid? I mean, like you can just go down the list of fears and then look at it and be like, okay, well, how likely is that really? And the thing is like, particularly if people are giving money, like they already love you. Like people are capable of such grace, right? Especially if you're willing to be like, yeah, we screwed up and I'm sorry. And this is what we've learned from it. People are usually willing to give you the benefit of the doubt. So good. All right. Let's get to those rapid fire questions just to give a little extra it. value. All right. First one, Rhea, what's the best fundraising advice you've ever received? Don't make decisions for other people. So good. What book do you rec recommend to our audience and why? Oh, so many. Actually, two that are not fundraising books. So one is You're Invited by John Levy, and it's about community building. I really recommend that. And the second is actually Setting the Table by Danny Meyer. There's so much about hospitality and fundraising that are analogous 
And when we think about the donor experience, the way that Danny Meyer thinks about the dining experience, I think we put ourselves in the right mindset. Beautiful. What are the three most important traits a successful fundraiser must possess? The ability to listen, (laughs) which is to say 75% them talking, 25% you talking. Genuine curiosity about people and the ability to be flexible. So they did a study in England about the most successful fundraisers and they called them curious chameleons. Like people who are curious about others, but also can adapt based on the person that they're talking to. So then I guess finally I would say actually like genuinely liking people, which seems obvious, but (laughs) isn't always the case in this job. Really good. What's your favorite fundraising app or tool? There are a lot, but I will say these days, ChatGPT. Like if you're not on ChatGPT, I would say you're missing out. So a couple of ways that I've used ChatGPT recently. Number one, I created an ideal donor avatar. Number two, I created a sample fundraising proposal template. Number three, I created a sample annual appeal letter. Number four, I created an email follow-up sequence. I mean, ChatGPT can be used for so many things. Of course, I'll have to tweak it and revise it, but no longer will you look at a blank page. I love that. And it's a pretty rapid process. Oh, yeah. It spits it out in a second. And it's free. I mean, there's no reason not to use this. Incredible. Incredible. What's your favorite nonprofit conference and why? Well, you know, to be honest, I I don't go to a ton of conferences, but I probably should. But the AFP icon seems to be the one that pulls all the people. Are you going to that? Yeah. Leaving Saturday and I'm giving a talk on Monday. Oh, well, good luck. Let me know how it goes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. In beautiful New Orleans. I know. Cool. It's like the whole fundraising world is there. I'm like, where am I? Why didn't I get it together to go? Next year. Yes. And so next year, 2024, will be held in Toronto. Love it. I love Toronto. Okay, great. Yep. I so will put it on your be calendar. there with on. And speaker apps are open right now. Rhea, you should totally apply to speak. Oh, I'll, yes. I'll, I'll send I you will. the link. Fabulous. Thank you. Yeah. And if anyone, any of our listeners who wants to, you know, apply to speak at AFP Icon, I mean, just go to the AFP Global website and you'll see that applications are open right now. Yeah. It's like the Super Bowl of fundraising. It's happening in New Orleans <laughs> in a little while. Yes, indeed. All right. Last question. Knowing what you know now about fundraising, what advice would you give your younger self just getting started? Number one, buy my book. (laughs) Number two, lighten up. You know, when I was young, I took it so seriously and, you know, I really stressed myself out. I would wake up in a cold sweat at four o'clock in the morning worrying about fundraising. And it's not that it's not serious, right? Like these are serious issues with real consequences. But also, I think there's an opportunity to bring kind of a lightheartedness to it and sort of a, it's like, again, dating analogy. It's like if you enter into a conversation with a really confident kind of a vibe, you put out a different vibe than if you're like, oh, I'm so desperate. Like desperate is a stinky perfume. Nobody likes desperate. And yet (laughs) I feel like in those early days, I would say the right things, but the tone of voice and the way I carried myself really spoke to this scarcity, this kind of desperate energy. And no one likes that. It's not fun. Yeah. It is the counter to the joy of giving. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I think a lot of us had to learn that the hard way. Takes a minute. Oh, amazing. Rhea, thank you for joining us. 
Tammy, thank you so much. This has been so fun. And by the way, we need to have you in my podcast. Sign me up. Okay, Love it. sounds good. Okay, perfect. If you want to learn more about Rhea, Rhea Wong Consulting, the nonprofit Lowdown Podcast, or follow her on social media, we've included links to her handles and website in the show notes, as well as links to other resources that we've talked about today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast. And keep on transforming your fundraising so you can transform the world. Bye for now. And now for a final word from our sponsor. Thank you to our friends at Bloomerang for supporting this episode. If you'd like to learn more about how Bloomerang can help your nonprofit acquire, retain, and engage donors, or learn how First Tea of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds in the first year with Bloomerang, head over to bloomerang.com forward slash intentional or click the link in the show notes. The Intentional Fundraiser Podcast is a Fundraising Transformed original. It's hosted by me, Tammy Zonker, founder and president of Fundraising Transformed, where we help equip and empower fundraisers, nonprofit leaders, and board members to transform their fundraising so they can transform the world. Visit fundraisingtransformed.com slash podcast to subscribe to this podcast and subscribe to my newsletter to get fundraising lessons, tools, and helpful resources delivered straight to your inbox each month. If you want my help with taking your fundraising to the next level, become a member of my Fundraising Transformers community as a growth member and join me live each month where I'll teach you the same strategies I use to lead, train, and coach thousands of nonprofits, social service organizations, healthcare foundations, private schools, colleges, and universities to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars including a single gift of $27.1 million. As a member, you can participate in my Ask Me Anything sessions every month and get answers to your burning questions. Chat with other growth members inside our private and safe online community about what you're working on, struggling with, and share lessons learned. And get instant access to my growing library of on-demand self-paced training classes. New content is added every single month. Learn more about becoming a member at fundraisingtransform.com slash growth. Talk soon.